When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chetty. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. False flag fears. NATO warns Russia could be staging a pretext for an attack on Ukraine. Skating scandal. Camila Valieva falters at the Olympics amid her drugs controversy. And faster fed. St. Louis Fed President Jim Bollard joins to give his take. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move this Thursday, a day where the world fears escalation, not de-escalation in the Ukraine crisis. NATO is warning again that it sees no sign Russia's pulling troops back from the Ukraine border. Warning, too, of a so-called false flag operation as a potential pretext for Russian aggression. In the meantime, the business community watches and waits. We'll be joined by the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine to discuss the impact on confidence and investment. And in the meantime, uncertainty in Europe certainly weighing on global investor confidence too. U.S. stock market futures, as you can see, are lower and European bourses losing ground too amid cautious trade during the Asia session also. The minutes from the latest Federal Reserve meeting actually helped stocks bounce on Wednesday. They showed that while the central bank is poised to tighten interest rates more aggressively if required to tame inflation, they were less panicked overall at least two weeks ago. Those minutes were filed well before recent comments from the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, James Bullard, who said he's open to a half a percentage point rate hike in March and has argued the Fed's credibility is at stake if it doesn't move more quickly. He will join us later in the show to discuss his views. So a faster moving Fed and a faster moving first move begins now. Let's get right to the drivers. Escalation not de-escalation. The United States says evidence on the ground shows Russia is moving towards an imminent invasion of Ukraine. It comes as intelligence from the US and UK suggests another 7,000 troops have massed on the Ukrainian border in the last 24 hours, despite the Kremlin's claims that some forces had been pulled back. Now, the Russians say that they are withdrawing some of those forces now that exercises are complete. But we don't see that. Quite the contrary, we see them add to the more than 150,000 troops that they already have arrayed along that border, even in the last couple of days. We see some of those troops inch closer to that border. We see them fly in more combat and support aircraft. We see them sharpen their readiness in the Black Sea. Meanwhile, both Ukrainian armed forces and Russian-backed separatists report renewed shelling in the Donbass region. And back in Brussels, NATO is concerned Russia is looking for a pretext for invasion. We are concerned that uh, Russia is trying to stage a pretext for an armed attack against Ukraine. This is the reason why we are so closely monitoring what is going on and also why uh, NATO NATO allies have exposed uh, 
the Russian actions, the Russian, the Russian plans, and the Russian efforts uh, 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 when it comes to disinformation. And in the next hour, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to address the United Nations. And we've just learned the U.S. has received a response now from Russia to its written document delivered three weeks ago, laying out what the U.S. calls a, quote, diplomatic path forward. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now from Moscow. Melissa Bell is following the NATO meeting for us in Brussels, too. Both great to have you on the show. Nick, to you first. I think what stood out for me there most of all was we're back to using this word imminent. I saw comments from the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations this morning. The quote was the evidence on the ground is that Russia is moving towards an imminent invasion. We're back there once again, Nick. Your context, please. Yeah, let me let me just give you a bit of context. It's literally come into us in the in the past couple of minutes here while while we've been on air here. Uh, this is coming from the State Department. They're saying we can confirm that Russia has expelled the U.S. Deputy Chief of Mission, the DCM to Russia, Bart Gorman. Uh, Gorman was the second most senior official at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. In diplomatic terms, that is a very stiff rap on the knuckles uh, from Russia of the United States and clearly states in diplomatic terms uh, that they there is a significant amount of displeasure with the position that the United States is taking. As you say, we're going to be hearing from uh, Secretary of State Antony Lincoln at the UN in the coming hour. Uh, and this certainly seems to be, although we are still awaiting uh, further details on this, but it certainly seems to come in the context of the United States essentially saying, and others of course, saying that uh, Russia is indeed not drawing down its forces as it says it is, or at least uh, it is not something that, that the United States and allies at NATO can verify at this time. And indeed, the British Defence Secretary seemed to imply using a Russian word this morning uh, uh, to saying that uh, Russia was in fact lying. So in terms of where does the diplomacy stand, we just heard from the Russian foreign minister this morning saying that Russia remains ready uh, for for diplomatic engagement. However, he sort of raised the bar even further on that, saying that Russia's core demands uh, about NATO not allowing Ukraine, Ukraine to join NATO going back to 1997 lines, that was an issue that had to be tackled before anything else. Um, Russia, he also said that Russia would be making public what it has sent back in its written response to the United States. We don't know the details of what was sent back in that written response from Russia uh, at the moment. But if the diplomatic language around this is to be read correctly, um, there will not be. Well, there's going to be a lot of difficulty in that in that letter for the United States because the diplomacy around it is the number two at the mission here in Moscow. The U.S. mission has now been told to leave by Russian authorities. Yeah, Nick, that's where I was going to ask you, because I know you're literally reacting to that news as it breaks. How would you expect the Americans to respond to that now? Because clearly, given the backdrop, given the situation, everybody wants to be very careful here in terms of response. But what kind of response would you expect? 
Typically, um, when such a thing happens, there can be a tit-for-tat response. Mm. But this is not typical conditions. This is not a typical situation. I think the tensions are particularly high. Um, there will be a diplomatic message uh, of, of some description, of course. Um, I would expect U.S. officials at the State Department and beyond to, to pause and consider before making their next move, just because the current tensions are high. But it's, it's not out with the bounds of possibility that a tit-for-tat measure would, would be incurred. Yeah, it's a vitally important point. Melissa, come in here because what we also heard from the NATO Secretary General this morning is that warning, the concern about the risks, the prospects of what we call false flag operations, perhaps a pretext on Russia's behalf to in some way find a reason to attack Ukraine at this moment. Just give us more context on that too, particularly in light of the delicacy of the moment that we find ourselves in now. Particularly delicate moment, you're quite right, Julia. What Jen Stoltenberg was responding to was a question about those Russian reports today of increased hostilities in the Donbass uh, area. And of course, he explained uh, that it was the fear on the part of NATO allies that uh, this might be such news of such hostilities against uh, Russian backed separatists might be considered a pretext for an invasion. And this is a scenario uh, that they'd written uh, in advance, that they'd been warning about for months. And Jen Stoltenberg was asked immediately after that, uh, explaining uh, that uh, it, it was because of that fear of disinformation and the way it might be used. Uh, that NATO allies had been so forthright, so open, unusually so, with sharing their intelligence. He was asked immediately after that, uh, after that answer about, about those efforts, about the fact that, as you mentioned, uh, for weeks now, uh, the United States, but also NATO, has been warning of an imminent attack, has been sharing intelligence in a way that is most unusual. And he explained uh, that it was precisely because Russia had formed, it was because Russia had been massing its troops, and it was also uh, because Russia had been fairly plain when Vladimir Putin warned back in December uh, that if its guarantees were not met, were not satisfied by the West, then it would resort to military technical means. For all those reasons, explained the Secretary General of NATO, uh, NATO had reason to believe uh, that Russia might act and that it might act in that way, hence the warnings that it's been uh, giving for weeks regarding this. So uh, keeping a very close eye there, he said, on what's happening in the Donbass region and what noise is coming out of uh, Moscow with regard to that. Uh, we also heard, of course, you as you mentioned, from the American Defense Secretary, who's now on his way to Poland and then on to Lithuania, where he'll be meeting, meeting uh, with NATO allies, who also spoke of those troops, as we heard, inching towards the border uh, with things like uh, blood supplies. And as a soldier, he said, I know that this does not mean that troops are retreating, but rather that they are preparing uh, to stay. And he quoted the words of Harry Truman, the president at the time, the NATO creation of NATO saying, look, just because uh, peace is difficult, it does not mean that war is inevitable. Really urging both uh, Lloyd Austin and Jen Stoltenberg at the end of these two days of meetings of NATO defense ministers, urging Moscow uh, to sit down and talk, really saying there is still time for dialogue, even at this extremely tense time when everyone fears the worst, Julia. Yes, very vitally important words. Nick Robertson, Melissa Bell, thank you for that. And of course, in the next hour, we'll be hearing from the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and we will bring that to you the moment he begins speaking. For now, let's move on.
tears and tumbles on the ice. Just a few moments ago, the controversial Russian figure skater Kamila Velieva finished fourth in the women's individual event at the Beijing Winter Olympics. Amanda Davies joins us on this. Amanda, a huge question was, if she lands in the medals, no one gets a medal until they've discovered what the situation is. That question, at least, is resolved, but, but heartbreak for her, clearly. Yeah, Julia, if there was something of an uncomfortable feeling heading into this morning and this second session of the women's individual skating event in Beijing 2022, because 15-year-old Camilla Valieva had failed a drugs test and yet was still able to compete, I can't tell you how uncomfortable that feeling is now, having seen what played out on the ice in Beijing today. The irony of the fact that as a 15-year-old, she was allowed to compete and was not sent home from this Games because she was seen as a protected person. A minor should not be lost because what we watched was a 15-year-old who earlier this week had talked about being emotionally tired with what she had gone through. It didn't seem to affect her on the ice on Tuesday in her first event, the short programme. But today, a skater who up to this point had been faultless, heralded as one of the best, if perhaps not the best in the world ever, for what she was doing on the ice it just went horribly wrong. And she stumbled on more than one occasion. She landed on her bottom on the ice. She, to her credit, picked herself up, carried on, but finished her routine in tears and really was devastated at the end of the day. She finishes in fourth place. So as you said, those question marks about what it means for any medal ceremony have been removed. But it is two of her fellow athletes from the the Russian Olympic Committee. Anna Shabakova, the reigning world champion who finishes in gold medal position. Alexander Trivasova, who finishes uh, in silver medal position, a, a fellow athlete from the Russian Olympic Committee. And then Japan's Sakamoto, who takes the bronze. But I think all in all, anybody watching for those who were there inside the stadium, a really, really sad day for figure skating for the Olympic movement. And the questions now will ramp up. This is not the end of the story about child protection Mm. as to the rules about doping at the Olympic Games. It, It was a horrible moment to sit and watch. Yeah. Irrespective of what's going on, I just want to give the girl a hug. She's a 15-year-old girl. Amanda Davies, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead on First Move. The cost of doing business in Ukraine. We'll look at the obstacles facing multinationals. Plus, small talk with your taxi driver. No longer necessary. The company putting driverless cabs on the roads of San Francisco. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures continue to point to a lower Wall Street open. Futures falling to session lows, in fact, in the past few moments on news from the U.S. State Department that Russia has expelled the deputy U.S. ambassador to Russia, as we mentioned briefly earlier on in the show. The U.S. also saying Russia is, quote, moving towards a, quote, imminent invasion. 
All this amid a backdrop of continued uncertainty over the Fed's response to rising inflation. The latest Federal Reserve minutes show policymakers split on how to withdraw support and over what time horizon. But inflation data released since that meeting has even led some investors to speculate that the Fed could raise interest rates by half a percentage point in back-to-back meetings. Just for context, if they did that, it would be the first time that's happened since 1994. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard says the U.S. central bank's credibility is at stake if it doesn't act forcefully. Bullard, a voting member of the FOMC, has said he's open to half a percentage point rise in March and wants to see a full percentage point of hikes by July. And I'm pleased to say he joins us now. Jim, welcome to the show. You are very welcome, as always. Um, I have to say you alarmed, if that's the right word, investors in recent days arguing for quicker tightening. Since then, we've had even more alarming pricing data, both consumer prices and producer prices. Is that one percentage point hike by, by July even enough in your mind at this stage? Um, well, on the, on the investor alarm, uh, you know, we're, we're not uh, trying to keep, uh, you know, everyone calm, I guess, at every moment. I think uh, uh, what we want to do is pursue the best policy that we can and let the market adjust, let the market price appropriately. And we have uh, high inflation in the U.S., uh, headline CPI inflation running at 7.5% over the last year. If you want to throw out food and energy and go to uh, the committee's preferred measure of inflation, I now think that that will be above 5% in the next report, uh, about 5.2%, I'd say, on uh, PCE inflation, less uh, food and energy. So this is, means that we're missing our inflation target on our preferred measure by you know, more than 300 basis points. And policy is still at rock bottom lows as far as interest rates and we've got uh, still asset purchases going on. So uh, this is a moment where we need to uh, shift to a uh, less accommodation and uh, the debate is about how fast to do that. I've suggested that a good target would be to have the funds rate or the policy rate up at uh, about 100 basis points uh, by July 1st. And that does mean we're, we would have to move faster and more nimbly than we have uh, in recent decades. Uh, but I think that's probably the appropriate policy now. We need some risk management in case this inflation does not moderate in the second half of this year, in which case uh, the Fed would uh, really be, uh, I've said in, in previous interviews, in a pickle. Uh, in the second <laughs> half of the year, if if uh, if inflation doesn't moderate and we still have this uh, extremely accommodative policy in place. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I didn't mean to suggest alarm was a bad thing in this case, actually. I think consumers are really alarmed by what they're seeing and, and the response is required. And some might say, especially pickled rather than in a pickle at this current juncture. Have you had yeah. any luck convincing your colleagues about the prospect of needing perhaps even a half Point rate hike in March, or are you still an outlier? Well, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, markets are pricing, I think, about fifty uh, percent probability right now. Uh, but I'm not saying that uh, that's necessarily uh, what we have to do. I think, uh, you know, I've laid out this hundred basis points by July first, and let the chair manage 
the committee and the expectations around that appropriately. Uh, he's very good at that. And, and, uh, but I do think it's important to get moving. And that's, I do think it's important that markets understand the necessity of the Fed's move here. I mean, I was checking this morning, and I think it's around 60% priced, actually. Um, ah, okay. But I'll take your word for it's it rather, rather than mine. <laughs> um, but the point is the market's doing some of the work for the Federal Reserve here in that it's sort of pricing. How important is doing what the market's pricing and following through versus doing actually what should be done? Well, fortunately, uh, yes, markets have done uh, a lot of the pricing already. The two-year is up uh, substantially since last October. That's helping us a lot, uh, I think, uh, and, and I think that's, that's great. And then I think our follow-through will also be appropriate. Uh, that would be the appropriate policy. I mean, one thing I, I guess I'd like to say here is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, if you raise rates, you're risking recession. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, come on, this is just the very first in a, in a series of moves. There will be an, a point in the future where we'll have to make a judgment about how far is too far. But this is just talking about the very uh, first moves from an extremely accommodative policy that we used during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I, th I don't think those first moves are very likely to tip the economy into recession. I'm still expecting three and a half to four percent growth this year in the U.S. economy. And I, th I think uh, uh, labor markets will get even tighter than they are right now. And they're some of the tightest labor markets we've seen in a generation. Uh, so um, I think we're in good shape on the real economy. Unfortunately, this inflation is eating into wage gains for low and moderate income households. They're noticing that and they're saying that their purchasing power is going down. Uh, so we'd like to provide some relief on that by keeping inflation under control. I mean, we're talking about a 4% annualized growth economy, uh, record or near record quick rate of people for jobs. Jobs are plentiful if you can find the right people. Um, Larry Summers, the Treasury Secretary, said yesterday, you should quit QE because obviously the Federal Reserve is still buying bonds tomorrow. Do you agree? Uh, well, the thinking on that is that the, this has already been drawn to a close and it will end in March. Uh, I think even if we did that, it would be a symbolic and token effort at this point. But it would send um, a message. It would send a message. Uh, it's something we could consider, but uh, I think the committee has... Uh, has looked at that. It was mentioned in the minutes uh, that came out yesterday, uh, but the judgment was to just go ahead and let the program end. And, uh, but I do think it's, it's a bit of a juxtaposition here to have these kinds of inflation numbers and us still uh, with the asset purchases uh, going on. But it just shows you how fast events are moving with respect to the economy and the uh, committee is going to have to similarly move quickly in response to the data. Is it a juxtaposition or is it just to your point, and you've made it already, a, a real danger for the Fed's credibility? Uh, I, I, I'm concerned that we uh, react appropriately in this environment. And uh, I think we're, our credibility is more at risk than it's been at any time uh, since I've been in the Fed in 30 years. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, but... I'm confident in the chair and the committee that we'll come to the right uh, conclusions in the end and we will be able to keep inflation under control. But it does what's, require us to move now. Yeah. What's the fear 
just because you mentioned it and, and the discussion's already being had. Oh, if you look at what the markets are pricing, then there's a risk that they move too fast and we go into recession. It's like, hang on a second. Look at the data. Look at consumer confidence. Look at rising prices. To your point, the impact that, that that's having. Why hold back, Jim? What, what, what is the fear? Uh, you'd have to ask others uh, about that, uh, why we wouldn't go ahead at this juncture. I think I have yeah. a very strong argument and, uh, I, you know, I hope I'm yeah, able to right. carry the day here. Uh, but, <laughs> I'm asking um, the wrong person. But I'm only one person on the committee. So, that, you know, yeah. I, I think, uh, that, you know, you just have to ask others uh, what, their, what their key concerns are. But they're not afraid of the market. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> Do you think they uh, are? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, markets generally have been way up in, uh, you know, during the pandemic, and um, asset prices are off their all-time highs, but they're still quite high, and housing prices have been way up, and household wealth has been way up. So I think as far as uh, asset holders in the economy, they've done very well through this period. And even if there was a repricing there, I think they'd, they'd still be in pretty good shape considering the last two years. You know, it's fascinating. You raise a, a really important point. Um, and we've talked about it in the past, you and I, about asset price inflation and bubbles or, or bubblets. And I look at some of the asset price shifts that we've seen, whether it's in some of the meme stocks or even cryptocurrencies. And in the past six months, there will be people, given the peak to drop that we've seen, that lost way more money than they can afford and easy money, perhaps excessive risk taking and exuberance uh, has fueled that. Do, do you think the Fed needs to take some responsibility for that at this moment too? Uh, yeah, I mean, low rates do feed into a certain amount of exuberance. Uh, you can borrow money to do things that, uh, that you know, might be more questionable than, than they would be at higher interest rates. So I, I think that sort of behavior will get shaken out here to some degree. Um, but I'd be mostly concerned about housing. Um, uh, mm. Housing market has uh, been very ebullient. And uh, there's been also, I think, the pandemic causing a shift of demand toward single family homes. And people wanting to sort of invest more in the places that they're spending more time. And uh, the, the demand part is okay, but the, to the extent this is overpriced, we got into a lot of trouble in, in 2007 to 2009 by having an overpriced uh, housing market that had to correct. And that caused a lot of problems because those are leveraged assets. So I think. Um, we want to be very cautious on that dimension, and that again brings up this issue about you know the purchases of asset uh, mortgage-backed securities and uh, aid to the housing market in an environment where we really didn't really need to be providing aid to the housing market. That came from early in the pandemic where there was a concern about that, but that that concern has been not been warranted. Jim, I think we've gone full circle on this conversation and it ties back to the calibration of policy response and not letting things go too far. Um, good luck, sir. And I never thought I'd say that about interest rates, but good luck convincing your colleagues. And um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Great to, great to chat to you, as always. Great. Thanks for, thanks for having Jim me. Jim Bullard. Thank you, the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve there. Stay with First Move. More to come. 
Moments ago, U.S. President Joe Biden addressed the situation in Ukraine as he left the White House for a trip to Ohio. Let's just listen in. They have not moved any of their troops out. They've moved more troops in, number one. Number two, we have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation. They have an excuse to go in. Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine, number one. Number two. I've been waiting for a response from Putin for my letter, that my response to him. It comes to that Moscow embassy. Their faction are here. Not faction, their general here. I have not read it yet. I cannot comment on it. Have you been speaking on it in any way? Oh, yes. Is your sense that this is going to happen now? Oh, yes. Not, I, my sense is this will happen within the next several days. What does this mean? Is there any what? diplomatic path still available? Yes, there is. There's a third diplomatic path. That's why I asked Senator uh, Senator, uh, Secretary Blinken, to go to the United Nations and make his statement today. He'll lay out what that path is. I've laid out a path to Putin as well, uh, on, I think, Sunday. And so there is a path. There is a way through this. Are you going to call Putin? Are you going to call Putin? I'm not calling Putin. I have no plans to call Putin right now. Do you think you've made a final decision? So that was uh, President Joe Biden there just leaving the White House just to reiterate some of the uh, words and lines that he gave there. There's reason to believe that Russia is engaged in false flag operations. They believe and that there is every indication to believe they are prepared to go into Ukraine to attack Ukraine. So a real sense of uh, heightened tension this morning um, as uh, the president was leaving the White House there. Any further headlines on that? We will bring them to you for now. Let's move on. The Ukrainian government trying to avoid internal panic, and that's vitally important for an economy that relies on foreign investment. Those decisions are based on access to international financial markets and also the strength and stability of a national currency. Many of America's biggest companies are there, especially in agriculture, consumer goods and technology. A conflict, of course, would leave them exposed, but also factor in the potential damage to sectors such as insurance, aviation and tourism. Andy Hunter there is the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine. He says many of his members have long held emergency contingency plans. Andy, fantastic to have you with us. Um, I do want to talk about what you're seeing in terms of, of investment and what your members are saying. But first, I just want to talk to you there at the American Chamber of Commerce. How are you and your colleagues doing? And, and are any of those that are foreign talking about leaving, wanting to leave? How sentiment there? Well, business is is resilient, and uh, mm. we're seeing that the um, the business leaders and the general managers here in Ukraine. I mean, they they're they're, they're tough cookies. Um, we we as the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine, we are continuing our operations. We are in regular contact, daily contact with our members, with Ukraine's government and the um, the U.S. embassy. And um, we are this is something we've been doing for the last thirty years, and we're seeing that the uh, the members, the companies are continuing their operations in, in Ukraine. They've invested over $50 billion um, so far. Uh, they're employing 400,000 people and they're really keeping the economy ticking over. Um, obviously, business contingency plans are in place. Um, they're being Many of these business contingency plans have been in place for years. Now they're being reviewed regularly on almost on a daily basis now. Um, the big issues are obviously cyber, and then very detailed uh, contingency plans in terms of hibernation, relocation, evacuation. But also what we're seeing is, is more and more white collar and blue collar employees 
uh, saying, you know, we're not going nowhere. Uh, we will stay to protect, to defend our community, our villages, our city, our country. And that, that's something we're seeing uh, across, across, across the board. Um, but as you say, I mean, it is very much. I mean, we just spoke with uh, one company today. They have a vessel in the port of Odessa, which is due to depart over the next uh, few hours. It's being loaded with uh, 70,000 tons of corn. Um, and a lot of this uh, agriculture is feeding you know, many countries across the world. So I think it is also the supply chains across the world that, that continues. But generally, I think, you know, we are, uh, the business is resilient, it's united. Uh, probably the biggest challenges that the businesses are facing here on the ground is actually communicating with head office, with their regional office, because the, um, the apprehension is, is extremely high when you read, uh, you know, in Western media. And um, the mood on the ground is slightly more serene, I would say. It is karma, uh, the mood and the what we see on the streets of Kiev, in the companies, um, they are continuing. Obviously, again, I reiterate that the contingency plans are in place, but it is uh, something that uh, many of these companies, these um, higher risk have been seeing for the last eight years, ever Andy. since Russia uh, invaded and uh, with the loss of Crimea and uh, eastern parts of eastern Ukraine in Donbass and Luhansk. Yeah, it's exactly what I was going to ask you, because we just showed some of your members and these are huge businesses with big operations. They've been in Ukraine and operating for longer than a decade. So they have the experience and the example of what happened with Crimea and in the, in the invasion in Crimea back in 2014. I know it's difficult to compare and contrast in the run up to that, but how does this feel differently, if at all? And when you're talking about the contingency plans and when they're reviewing those plans, what do you mean by that? What, well, what's the I think difference? The difference yeah, yeah, I think the difference here is, is clearly um, 2014, it was much quicker. It, it, it sort of um, it happened and there was less time to prepare. Whereas now, I think for the last number of months or for at least a, a couple of months, uh, we have been seeing, you know, the apprehension, the tension and um, the, the preparation. So, but I, I think at the same time, it is, um, you know, having these this resilience and uh, being prepared. Um, but again, at the same time, understanding that the businesses do continue. You know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of days or the next couple of weeks. But I think it, it is having, um, you know, the resilience and the continuity plans and it's different sectors. I mean, we, we talk about agriculture. UK Ukraine is a big player globally for agriculture. Um, we talk about, you know, cooking oil. Uh, it's the number one in the world for exports of sunflower oil. So the, um, the, the fish and chips and the crisps that are being fried all across the world, more likely than not, some of that cooking oil is coming from Ukraine. The corn, some countries, 50% of all their corn comes from Ukraine. So the cornflakes that Europeans are eating tomorrow for breakfast, but not only, but also for animal feed. So this has a, a, a wiser implication, but not only agriculture, I think we've seen uh, information technologies. Ukraine is really booming in this sector in IT. Uh, over 300,000 uh, professionals uh, working in the IT sector, keeping you know businesses, especially in the US, turning over with the banks and many Andy. companies 
I actually saw a tweet that you sent out about that, which I, I thought was fascinating. I just want to mention, I know it's government forecast, but that Ukraine's IT sector could be 10 percent of GDP by 2025, which um, I think would be incredible. And we can talk about that again. But it, it does tie to the point that you made earlier about the cyber risks. I have around a minute left. How concerned are your members about the cyber attacks that we've seen, particularly the, the latest one just in the past week? And, and how protected are they? Well, obviously, it's a C-suite issue. Um, so cyber is, is is a key concern. I think, you know, we are checking on a regular basis in terms of any vulnerabilities, uh, in terms of all kinds of uh, IT hygiene and making sure that the systems are in place. You know, we are in regular contact with experts that are providing cybersecurity uh, advice. Um, but it, it is. And I think, you know, in terms of IT, you know, as you mentioned, that is a sector that that, that is really booming and picking up. Um, but um, again, it, it's being prepared because we saw the um, cyber attacks on two of the largest banks uh, the day before yesterday. And this has a knock on effect on the confidence. Um, the Hrivnia so far, you know, it's been relatively stable. It did take a bit of a knock since the beginning of the year, devaluation of around 5%. But so far, we, we see that the National Bank is, is keeping it um, um, pretty much stable. And I think that that's what we're hoping for for the future, because the reserves are, are far better uh, than they were in 2014. So, you know, the various sectors, you know, the agriculture, the IT, the manufacturing, much of the manufacturing in the automobile sector um, is coming from Ukraine um, and very other sectors also. So I think um, the cost this Russian aggression over the last eight years, there was a recent report out literally last week, and it's putting a, a tag of about a quarter of a trillion dollars. Um, $280 billion is the cost that Ukraine is paying, Ukraine's economy is paying due to this Russian aggression. And I think that is something, you know, we are here really to keep the economy going, uh, to keep it running. And I think, you know, we're very grateful to the companies that do believe in Ukraine that are here and that, that continue to stay here. I'm and I think there. now it's really waiting for that rebound. Hopefully we'll have clarity soon where we go from here. And hopefully Ukraine will be able to have a rebound of the economy and uh, share, um, you know, some of these good opportunities with many other new investors. Andy, you're certainly doing a good job of promoting it. Fingers crossed and stay safe, please. Um, thank you for joining thank us. You. Great to get your insights. Andy Hunter there, president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Ukraine. Okay, coming up on First Move, a self-driving taxi service taking to the streets of San Francisco and catching the eyes of some major investors. More after this. Welcome back to First Move. If you're out at 2 a.m. in San Francisco, you may be lucky enough to cruise home in a driverless taxi. Cruise, the self-driving subsidiary of General Motors, has launched its robo-taxi service to the public in parts of the city. The company has already received $10 billion of investment from firms like Microsoft, SoftBank and Walmart. And last month, GM's CEO Mary Barris said it's looking to sell personal autonomous vehicles by the middle of the decade. Carl Vogt is co-founder and interim CEO of Cruise, and he joins us now. Carl, fantastic to have you on the show. So, just so that my viewers understand, if you're in San Francisco, you have access to the app and you're really lucky. Between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m., I believe, you can basically get a self-driving car home. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a brand new technology, so we're starting really slow and gradual, and we're rolling this out. So, um, but as of right now, like you said, if you have access to our app, which right now has a pretty long wait list, you can pull out your mobile phone, say where you want to go, uh, and no kidding, a car will show up right in front of you, pull over to the side of the road and stop with nobody inside whatsoever. You can hop in the car, uh, push start ride, and after you buckle your seatbelt, it'll take off and whisk you away to your destination. It's it's a truly magical experience, and I, and I think one that you know all of us on working on self-driving cars and thinking about the future of transportation have imagined, but it's here for the first time in a major U.S. city. I mean, some might not call this magical. Some might call this absolutely terrifying, quite frankly, but, um, but we'll talk about that. Didn't you actually have one person get in and fall asleep, by the way, and actually they had to be woken up at their destination remotely? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the reasons we're starting slow and rolling out, you know, with, with a few hours and a few regions of the city is we didn't know exactly what to expect when people start using this. Um, but, you know, the first few minutes of this ride, people realize that the this car actually drives really smoothly, perhaps as good or as better than, than you would in terms of comfort. And uh, one of our first passengers on the first night after a few minutes kind of was nodding to the side and then fell asleep. And of course, the car doesn't know this. It keeps taking it to your, your destination. And so it pulled over in front of his, um, this person's house and uh, the customer service agent remotely um, got a ping saying, hey, there's still someone in the car. And they connected uh, over the speaker and said, you know, hey, are you there? And um, he sort of woke up really abruptly and got out of the car. But th that's one of the many little things we want to learn about and make sure we can nail before we roll this out to a larger scale and make it available to more people. Yeah, that's where you need an eject button to be pressed at Mission Command. Um, Mary, I'm joking. Mary Barra, uh, the CEO of GM, I mentioned in the introduction there, talked about not only the ride hailing, but also providing these as being able to be sold to the market by the middle of this decade as, as autonomous vehicles. Is that the plan? And, and what's going to happen between now and then in order to, to achieve that ambition? Yeah, look at, at Cruise working on self-driving cars. The reason all of us are doing this is we think it has a massive potential positive impact on society, whether it's you know, making all these vehicles electric or one day being you know, far safer than, than we as humans could be um, and giving us back a lot of time. And that's going to start with robo-taxis. That's our, our core business model for the next few years. But it also makes sense eventually to move that into where our customers are. Some customers um, or people that drive cars uh, may not want to ride in a robo-taxi, so we want to meet them where they are and eventually have this technology in a, available in a vehicle that, that you can go out and buy. And I think that's going to be really profound and in, increase the, the positive impact of this technology and, and really just um, make people's lives a lot better to not have to sit in traffic if you don't want to, um, you know, to be able to push a button and, and sit back and, and not have to necessarily monitor the car like some of the systems on the road today, but truly not, not need to pay attention, maybe turn around in your seat and talk to people, whatever it is. There's a lot of opportunities out there when you put this in vehicles that people can own. Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions about having the right amount of data in order to make this safe on the road, even if perhaps the driver of this vehicle or the autonomous driver of this vehicle is safer than an individual. How does everybody else on the road react and respond? Um, but actually, my question would come down to cost. Is this going to be less expensive perhaps than hailing an Uber or, or driving yourself? And what about the cost itself of the vehicle? Do you have any sense at this stage? I only ask because... Mary Barra also said you could be generating $50 billion in annual revenues by the end of the decade, that you must have some sense of where the costs of these things are going to come in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think about it today, though, when you're using a ride hail service, you're paying for a chauffeur to carry you around. And so that's you're essentially paying you know someone's full-time wage to move you around, or at least a piece of it. 
And so, you know, when we introduce technology that can do that driving, not only can we provide a really, you know, smooth experience, you know, other positive things, like you don't have to get into a car with someone you don't know, but when you remove that, that um, cost of, of having to have a human in there, sitting there, just, you know, chauffeuring you around a city, you can take the cost much lower. And the technology, um, you know, over time will get really inexpensive and, uh, and make it, we think, to the point where a lot of people may choose to actually use an autonomous driverless rideshare service instead of owning their own car. It's a lot easier and a lot less headaches to do that. Are you good friends with Dara Khosrowshahi over at Uber? I think he's probably shuddering. Uh, I've met Dara, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just checking. What about Tesla? <laughs> well, there's a lot of people thinking about you know, uh, autonomy and robo-taxis for the same reason. It's a yeah. massive impact. We haven't seen a shift in how people get around like this, you know, probably in the last hundred years. And so the opportunity is there not just to make a better, you know, um, a better experience for people and, and all our vehicles are electric, so better for the environment, but it's also a massive business opportunity. So a lot of people have their eyes on it because uh, there are a few times when, a, very few times in history when a new technology comes along and it's just like fundamentally better, lower cost, and good across the board. Uh, and that's what we have here with driverless cars. Data, safety, regulators, are all these things going to come together in the next two to three years in your mind to allow you to expand beyond a little subset of San Francisco? Sure. I mean, we've worked really closely with regulators, particularly in California, the Department of Motor Vehicles, California Public Utilities Commission. Uh, to make sure they understand this technology, what it's capable of, and what its limitations. Um, and also, we've been careful to in introduce it to the public gradually, so that there's not as much shock by something new. And you know, again, like once you actually try this, you're blown away by how smooth it is and great the experience it is. But before that, there's a lot of apprehension and a lot of questions. So we think it's important to be proactive with regulators, know that, and and let them know what's coming. And so far, we've seen a pretty good response, and uh, look forward to continuing to work work with regulators to bring this technology to more places in the U.S. and then also internationally. You know, I read that this was your dream since you were a teenager. I think you're very sedate for someone who's um, achieving their dreams, it seems. But then when you talk about it, the actual experience that you light up. So um, I can see that you're, you're having fun doing something that you love. Carl, good luck. Come back and talk to us soon, please. We uh, look forward to continuing your me. progress. Thank you. Carl Vogt there, co-founder and CEO, interim CEO of Cruise. You're watching First Move. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks, no surprise, opening sharply lower as concern grows over an imminent Russian attack on Ukraine. U.S. President Biden said a short while ago that Russia could be, quote, engaged in a false flag operation with the intent to spark a military conflict. Biden warned that Russia could launch a military action against Ukraine, quote, within the next several days. This despite Kremlin claims that they are beginning to withdraw forces from the region. In the meantime, the U.S. State Department confirming Russia has expelled the second highest ranking official at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, Bart Gorman. The U.S. calls this a, quote, escalatory step and says it's considering its response. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken set to address the U.N. Security Council here in New York in just a few moments time. This, as President Biden says, a Russian attack is possible in the next several days. I reiterate that. So we will be watching his words very closely, as I mentioned, the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, set to address the UN Security Council in the next hour. And we await that and we'll bring that to you live as it happens. Stay with CNN for the very latest on the Ukraine crisis. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatley. You've been watching First Move and we'll see you tomorrow.
We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.